All right, so now we have the songs in heaven. Um, and as you'll see, there's at least two different songs. But before we get there, uh, I wanted to point out another song that um, has a lot of similarities to this so that we kind of get uh, in the groove before we see the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Uh, but this will tie in well with the previous study we did in the Davidic covenant, because this song that I want to show you from 1 Chronicles 16 uh, is immediately prior to David receiving the, um, the covenant, the Davidic covenant. So here in 1 Chronicles 16, 1 through 7, we see the dedication of the temple where David offers burnt and peace offerings. Now, he doesn't offer them himself, but he has the Levites do that. Uh, he pronounces a blessing upon Israel. They share a meal together, which is typical. Uh, they, he appoints the Levitical ministers for the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies. And then the Levites will worship with harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets before the Ark of God. Now, I've got a couple of these verses pulled out of the song that, um, that is sung by the Levites after this. So in 1 Chronicles 16, verse 24, it says, Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. So this extends beyond Israel. For great is the Lord and great to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. And identifying him here as the Lord uh, who made the heavens shows his sovereignty over creation and his right to judge. Moving forward a few verses to verse 31, it says, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Again, this is extending beyond Israel. It's going to be the entire earth, all the nations who will say the Lord reigns. It says, let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, this is 3,000 years prior to our time right now. Uh, but he is still prophesying that the Lord will come to judge the earth, and at that time there will be peace on the earth from that point forward. So continuing in verse 35, Then say, Save us, O God, of our salvation, and gather us and deliver us from the nations, to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So we have here the hope of Israel that the Lord will gather them when he saves them. <clears throat> this section ends um, by Asaph, the uh, head of the uh, Levitical priests, or the, uh, the psalmist of the Le Levitical priests here, um, and his, his relatives ministering before the ark, and then we also see Zadok, one of the priests of the Levites, and all of his relatives offering burnt offerings and sacrifices before the tabernacle. 
Then God's everlasting loving kindness is praised with celebration, worship, and instruments. So this is further praise that continues after that song of Asaph. And then David receives the Davidic covenant. And this, remember, you'll, you'll remember, comes in two parts. We have the record in 1 Kings, and then we also have the record, sorry, uh, 2 Samuel. And then we have the account in 1 Chronicles. The one in 2 Samuel has a Solomonic focus. It focuses on Solomon as his immediate descendant. But the one that David receives immediately after this, uh, this time of worship is the messianic focus, where it focuses on a descendant that doesn't come from him, but that comes from one of his descendants. And that descendant will be perfect, and he will be um, the eternal descendant of David. One more thing I want to point out here is that Zadok was the one who ministered uh, in the temple. He was the, um, he was the priest while Nathan was the prophet and David was the king. So here the Levitical priest, or in uh, Ezekiel 44, we see that this uh, priest Zadok has a future in the millennial kingdom. In Ezekiel 44, it's looking forward towards that millennial kingdom. That is the kingdom that Jesus Christ will establish on this earth before the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, in fact, it is only the sons of Zadok that will be uh, used as priests in the millennial kingdom. So it says, but the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, further restricting, um, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord God. So during the sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, only the sons of Zadok will be allowed to perform those. Now the sons of Levi, uh, the rest of them, will also have a portion on the Lord's mountain. Uh, we're going to look at all this more when we get to chapter 20. They'll also have a portion on the Lord's mountain, um, but the sons of Zadok will be responsible for the priesthood of the temple. <clears throat> All right, so that brings us back into our immediate context. Um, I just wanted to share that uh, song of Asaph with you, because here we're about to see the, the, uh, the fulfillment of some of the aspects of what David uh, sang in that song of Asaph. So here in the text of Revelation, chapter 15, verse 3, it says, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now, this is clearly two different songs. Um, some try to uh, put them together and say that it's, it's all of this, that it's um, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb is one song, and that's what's printed in the text. Uh, but the Greek doesn't really allow for that. Um, it does distinguish these as two different but equal nouns so that they are referring to two different songs. The Song of Moses is not printed in the text of Revelation because it's already printed elsewhere, um, but the Song of the Lamb is printed here because it's not printed elsewhere. Now to uh, further complicate things, uh, there are two possibilities of what the Song of Moses is. I'm going to share with you first the least likely and then the most likely, but both of them uh, have similarities with the Song of the Lamb, 
So it really could be either one of these, but it's more likely a song that he sings in Deuteronomy, not the song that he sings in Exodus, but uh, it's worth looking at nonetheless. So here in Exodus 15, uh, this is right after God has brought them safely out of the hands of the Egyptians, and he has drowned the Egyptians in the Red Sea. This is what Moses sings. So it says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea, and the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover him. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. I'm going to jump to the end of this psalm, to the song. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. So in all of these songs, we have this theme of the Lord rescuing Israel, his people, from the hands of the enemy and establishing them on his holy mountain. His holy mountain identified in uh, Revelation chapter 14 and uh, also in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 and many other places, Zechariah 14. Uh, this uh, holy mountain is Zion, another name for Jerusalem, but it usually points towards the millennial Zion where it will actually be a physical mountain that, that is in the land of Israel, on top of which is the temple of God, the temple of the Messiah. So this looks forward again to the final salvation of Israel. So Moses recognizes God's immediate salvation, bringing Israel out of Egypt, and he correlates it with the final uh, salvation of Israel, where God is going to rescue them from the hands of the Antichrist. Now, it's doubtful that Moses fully understood what he was um, saying in this passage, because he was, uh, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this. So we have, uh, of course, the importance of understanding the dual authorship of Scripture, that although the human prophet might not fully understand their prophecy, the Holy Spirit is also the author of scripture, and he does fully understand the prophecies and the words spoken and written. This also ties in with the prophecy in Jeremiah that's very important in understanding the eschatology of Israel, because this promises that the final salvation of Israel will be very similar to the exodus uh, from Egypt. In Jeremiah 23, uh, starting in verse 3, it says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful and multiply. The only times in the past that God has brought Israel back into their land have been from single nations. 
first from Egypt and then from Babylon. He has never brought his remnant back from all the nations. This is still something that is future to us. It says, I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. That's also his name declared in uh, Ezekiel, pointing towards the Messiah that would rule over Israel during the Messianic kingdom. So the last bit of this prophecy in Jeremiah says, therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. But instead, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live in their own soil. Of course, Babylon is east of Israel and Egypt is south of Israel. This is a regathering of Israel that has never happened before. And when it happens, it will overshadow the exodus out of Egypt. And it is exactly what we have in the context of Revelation here in chapters 15 through 19, that God is bringing all the people back to Israel so that he can rescue them. So the song that I believe is spoken of here in Revelation 15, the song of Moses, comes from Deuteronomy 32. And the reason I think that this is the song of Revelation 15 is because Deuteronomy 31 gives evidence for that. So in Deuteronomy 31, verse 21, it says, Then it shall come about, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify before them as a witness. For it shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their intent which they are developing today, before I have brought them into the land which I swore. So if you remember, way back to, I want to say September, when we did the land covenant with Israel, that Deuteronomy 29 and 30 spoke of the future uh, expulsions and regatherings of Israel. We saw it came in three different sets. Well, here is the final regathering in, uh, in context in Deuteronomy 31. Moses is looking forward towards the unfaithfulness of Israel, but the faithfulness of God that he is going to bring them back finally when he does bring them into their land permanently. And what he has here in parentheses is important for us um, in determining Revelation 15. It says that this song that he is about to sing shall not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. Again, this is like a smoking gun. When you see a smoking gun early on in a book or early on in a movie, or rather when you see a gun early in a book or a movie, you know that eventually it will be fired. Well, here, because God does not uh, simply entertain uh, curiosity, he gives us the details which we will need to fully understand his word. 
this points towards the end. So when we get to the end, we want to recall what the Lord has said about the end through his, uh, through his human authors of scripture. So when it says this will never be forgotten, we can expect to see it return later on in scripture. Also in Deuteronomy 31, uh, verse 29, it says, for I know that after my death, you will act corruptly and turn from the way which I have commanded you. That's Moses speaking. And evil will befall you in the latter days, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. So they will be um, in the midst of uh, their evil, and they will undergo the wrath of God as well. We'll see later on after we uh, look at a few verses from Moses's song, that the Lord is going to rescue them through the fire, that the first time they're, or the, uh, that the, they will be regathered first in unbelief, God will refine them through fire, and then they will be rescued finally once they have been turned to belief. So that's really the purpose of the tribulation period is to turn Israel's face back towards him. He says they're a stiff-necked people. Uh, his goal in the tribulation is to break their neck, to turn them back towards him. And uh, not all of Israel will survive to that point, but those who survive will all be converted. But here in Deuteronomy 32, we see uh, just a few of these, I think it's 38 verses, so I only pulled out five or six so we could get a flavor of what Moses is singing about. Well, in verse four, he says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. They have acted corruptly towards him. And he's speaking of Israel here. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. <clears throat> but Jeshurun, which is a poetic way of saying Israel, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, and you are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strong, strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. So what's unique here, and we've still got a few more verses from Deuteronomy 32, but what's unique here is it's not purely God's victory in rescuing Israel but it's God's victory in rescuing Israel through the fire, in converting them to faith at the same time as he's rescuing them physically. So Moses is looking forward to that. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 21, it says, they have made me jealous with what is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets on fire the mountain or the foundations of the mountains. So this is speaking of God's refining fire, the anger of his passion, but it's his anger and passion directed towards Israel for their unfaithfulness. God does not cut off Israel for their unfaithfulness, but he refines them. That's part of his glory, that he does not lose a people, but rather he will convert them. So in Zechariah 13, 9, uh, we see this explicitly in view. 
when God says, I will bring the third part through fire. He's already said that there will be two thirds of Israel that will fall during this last part of the tribulation period. But one third of those who survive uh, towards the end will be rescued, but they will be rescued through fire. It says, refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Now that the Lord is my God, uh, that is looking forward towards their Messiah. They will recognize who the Messiah is. They will recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah over them. And at that point, they will call on his name and he will rescue them physically from the armies of the Antichrist. Now we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because this is what we're going to be spending the next few months looking at is the battle of Armageddon from which Jesus will rescue them. But since we're in a prelude spot, um, it is good to see what's about to happen to Israel during this tribulation period. So finally, the last few verses here from uh, the Song of Moses does speak proleptically again, looking forward um, about the battle of Armageddon. It says, I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword will devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives, from the long-haired leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and will render vengeance on his adversaries, and will atone for his land and his people. So especially that last line points us forward towards the future, where he's not just atoning for his people, uh, but he is atoning for the land. So we see the fulfillment of his land covenant. We see the fulfillment of the new covenant, which we haven't looked at yet, but we're going to look at next time we do a foundations. Um, and we also have the one who's doing it is the king of Israel. Um, so we have a found or a uh, fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So this looks forward towards the consummation of all God's judgment on this earth uh, before the messianic reign of Jesus Christ. So that's the song of Moses. That is the song that will be sung. Uh, by these Jewish martyrs at the end of the tribulation period. And then we get a new song, one that we haven't seen written before. And this, uh, I didn't copy this verse, but it is possible that this is the hymn that Jesus and his disciples sang on the Mount of Olives uh, prior to his uh, crucifixion. Now, I only say that's possible because that hymn isn't written out for us. We don't know what it is. We just know that he sang a song. Um, so this is one of many options. One option may be that uh, it's not recorded anywhere for us, and we may never know. Uh, but this still is a song of the Lamb, song of Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb. And that is, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now you'll remember that uh, at the end of Jesus Christ's life, he had been rejected as the king over Israel. But eventually he will be worshipped not only by Israel, but by all the nations of the world.
we can see this doxology broken down into eight different uh, things that are worshipped. We see his works worshipped. Uh, so that is specifically the things that he does. But if you look at number three, it's also his ways. It's not just the things that he does, but it's the way that he does it um, that will be worshipped. Um, also, he is worshipped as almighty. So his might, his omnipotence, his uh, power over all creation is worshipped. His regal authority or his royal authority, uh, that he is rightly recognized as the king over all the earth. Uh, that he will have dominion just as Adam was intended to have over this earth, not only the new heavens and the new earth, uh, but these, this earth will not pass away until he has ruled over it perfectly. Uh, number five, we have his doxological purpose, um, and we get that from the line that uh, they will glorify his name, and that's important because this is his overall theme, his overall purpose to all of creation is to draw glory to God. So this doxological purpose is a perfect consummation um, to his judgment, that his judgment will finally bring about uh, perfect reverence, perfect glory um, to him. Now, all of his actions work together for his glory. Um, and this is why we say this is the purpose of all scripture. Some would try to identify redemption as his purpose. Um, but if his purpose in creating is redemptive, then his purpose in creating was also to have man fall. Now we believe that he did know that, but he didn't create them in order for them to fall. Uh, it's also inconsistent because God does have purposes outside of redemption. Uh, for example, the angels for whom there is no plan of redemption. Those that fell have no redeemer. Um, so a better, broader view of God's creative purposes is doxological, that his purpose in creation is to bring glory to God. Also uh, worshipped here is his holiness. Now we're going to look at what he means by holiness, because this is a very uncommon word for holy. Um, in fact, I believe it is the only time that it's used in Revelation. His regal destiny, that he will, future tense, rule over the nations, and for his righteous acts, that his works works um, are equivalent to what is deserving by mankind. When he judges, he doesn't judge uh, beyond what is deserved. And he doesn't judge under what is deserved either. So here we have uh, coming in the next week, uh, the song from the altar, which will praise him for very similar features. It'll praise him as the almighty, the omnipotent one, the true and the righteous one. And this is the name also that will be written on him when he returns, excuse me, and his judgments, that his judgments are true and righteous. Uh, so there is a lot being said here. And I think it is because of how intense his judgments will be when he finally brings judgment on this earth. We have every witness in heaven that can speak saying that his judgments are not beyond what is deserved. Here in John 3, 18 through 19, we get a flavor of why that is. It says, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the men 
or and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So we see that unbelief is an evil act. Um, it is an act of not ascribing the glory deserving of God to him. In Romans 1.20, and we can we remember that uh, in Romans chapter 1 and 2, we see that people refuse to honor God. Um, though they know his statutes, they don't uh, abide by them. Though they know who he is, they don't believe in him. So in Romans 20, we see this verse uh, that no man is uh, without excuse. So it says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. So we see that this sin of unbelief is a judicial uh, or can be brought a judicial uh, judgment that because of their unbelief, they are already condemned so that this judgment wrought on the unbelieving world at the end of the tribulation period is not unjust. <clears throat> uh, Israel has been redeemed through judgment before. In Exodus 6, which recalls the Exodus event, uh, we read, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. So we'll recall the plagues brought down on Egypt, and many of them have correlations with the final plagues that is brought down on the uh, kingdom of the Antichrist. So we do have direct allusions to the Exodus event, not only in uh, reference to Moses, but also in the redeeming of Israel. We have allusions to the uh, event of the exile as well. You remember Daniel was under exile, um, and Israel was going to be redeemed to their land at that point as well. Daniel knew that there was only seven years that they would be, or 70 years that they would be put out of their land, and then they would return. So in Daniel 9, 14, we read, therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day we have sinned and we have been wicked. So this is really the third event in a series of um, judgments on Israel that they are put out of their land, they're brought back in, they're put out of their land, they're brought back in. But what we have in our text of Revelation is the final regathering of Israel. And they will be regathered through judgment, um, both on themselves to purify them, and on the rest of the world to um, avenge them. So here's what I meant by uh, a very unique use of God's holiness. The text has the word hasios instead of hagios, uh, which might not seem like a big deal, but it is a little different. Uh, this has the idea of holy, trustworthy, devout, hallowed, and sacred, whereas hagios has 
holy, set apart, consecrated, and dedicated. Now, how this is different is because hagias is an attribute that is given to all things that are set apart by God, including God himself, whereas hasias is something that uh, is drawn a little closer to God, where it's not simply dedicated or consecrated, but it itself is sacred, holy, uh, trustworthy. So this is one that is um, speaking of his sacredness and not only his uh, perfect righteousness. We also see all throughout scripture, the promise that God will be glorified. Um, God will be worshiped by the entire world. We have here in Philippians 2, uh, one of the letters from Paul, for this reason also God highly exalted him, that is Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Again, this has not happened yet. Paul is looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 16, which is coming again next week, uh, we see that the reaction of the world when God brings its judgments is going to be blasphemy, not worship. So we see that his righteous judgments are indeed righteous, because even through these judgments, they will not turn and worship God, but instead they will blaspheme him. Um, I'm also preparing a message this week on Cain uh, from Genesis 4, and he has a very similar reaction. When God pronounces his judgment on Cain for Cain's murder of his brother, uh, Cain's reaction is blasphemous. Cain does not repent of his actions. He does not turn to God and worship God who is holy above all other uh, names, but rather he ridicules God in a way, saying that God has overjudged him. God has given him uh, a judgment that is too severe. God's going to have grace on Cain, um, but he does not have grace towards the tribulation or the unbelieving world in the tribulation because um, his grace or his period of grace has ended. No longer will he tolerate the evils of this world. No longer will he allow it to go on, but he will put a full stop to it. So here in Revelation 16, it says, men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of pain and what happened? They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So we see that his judgments will indeed be absolutely just and deserving. But he will be king over all the nations. So at the end of this period of judgment, uh, when judgment is finished and he reigns over the earth, uh, he will be worshipped by the entire earth. So in Zechariah 14, verses uh, 9 through, actually, we're going to go all the way through 19, so 10 verses here, uh, starting in verse 9, it says, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one 
and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine press. Now, when it says Jerusalem will rise, uh, that does seem to be a very literal rise uh, because it speaks of Jerusalem being no longer a hill, but a mountain. Um, it could be part of the great earthquake, or it could be something that Jesus Christ does in the 75-day interval between the end of the tribulation period and the beginning of the messianic kingdom. But one way or another, Jerusalem will not only be the center of the world, but it will be located on a large mountain as well. Jerusalem will also dwell in peace and security. That is a perfect peace and security, not a fake peace and security promised by the Antichrist, uh, but here by the true Christ. It says people will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouths. So this is looking a little back before uh, verse 11. Verse 12 looks back and gives uh, further detail about what happened to those uh, who were against Jerusalem in the Battle of Armageddon. And it goes on, and it says, It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of the one will be lifted against the hand of the other, or of another. Judah will fight, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. <clears throat> so also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and the cattle that will be in those camps. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So those um, who are in unbelief, uh, well, we can look towards the uh, sheep and the goat judgments for the answer to how verse 16 follows from verses 14 and 15. The sheep and the goat judgments will judge on the basis of faith. Uh, those in which nations are uh, have faith and so treat Israel well, and those who do not have faith and so treat Israel poorly during the tribulation period. Those who treated Israel well um, because of their faith that they had in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ, will continue into the Messianic kingdom. And all of those nations, which are still represented during the millennial kingdom, will go to Jerusalem to worship, and they will celebrate in the festivals of Israel during that 1,000-year uh, reign of Jesus Christ. But we have an interesting event here, and again, it's, um, it's our smoking gun passage, where uh, because we see it in the text, we have good evidence that this will, in fact, happen. So in Isaiah 2, uh, verse 2, it says, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, 
and will be raised above the hills, again, a physical raising of Jerusalem, and all the nations will stream to it. In verse 3, and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Uh, so this is actually a verse that is written on the outside of the, uh, the uh, what is it, EUN, uh, where it says that a nation will no longer lift up sword against nation but they're looking at government to bring in this sort of peace we are looking to jesus christ to bring in this sort of peace and in fact um, the un wrote that before uh, further wars broke out and more blood has been shed in this past century than in any century before so we can trust god's prophecies we cannot trust the prophecies of man especially the abused prophecies of god used by man but uh, continuing back to Zechariah, looking at this millennial kingdom, the rule of Jesus Christ over the earth, what it will look like, it says it will be that it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Uh, this was actually the verse I was looking forward to when I was saying that. Uh, because we see this in the text, we're pretty sure that it will happen sometime during the Millennial Kingdom, that at some point, Egypt will choose not to go up to the Millennial Mountain to worship Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ, being the perfect executor of judgments during this kingdom, where he will rule perfectly, will judge Egypt um, for their lack of faithfulness. It says, if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nation who, uh, nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So at least Egypt, uh, but it looks like another nation or other nations will join Egypt in this uh, decision not to go up to the Millennial Mountain for the Feast of Booths. And the Lord will not send rain um, on Egypt during their time of rebellion. Now, this is nothing like the rebellion that will take place at the end of the millennial kingdom. Um, but we'll get to that in a few months. So lastly, let's look at a few verses here from Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm. It looks forward to the first and the second advent of Christ. So here we're in the second advent of Christ portion. It says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship, and those who go down to the dust will bow before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, 
that he has performed it. So I thought it was appropriate to end with a song when talking about the uh, songs in heaven. Thank you.